Hi, this is Dinah Mellon. I'm a DJ at WOMR, and I'm interviewing a DJ from WOMR, and her name is Cat Williams, and uh, hope to hear her back on the airwaves soon. We're, we are going to discuss Sound Booth Superwomen. Where are the women music producers? And Cat is right on top of this. There's a lot of information out there, but it's not talked about very much at all. Right, Kat? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, it came to me um, when you first sent out the email about, um, you know, shows for the um, International Women's Day. And it just so happened that it coincided with the new Roberta Flack documentary that's featured on American Experience this month. And in it, you know, she, uh, you know, starts out as a, you know, a musician and a songwriter, and she's an incredibly accomplished musician, but she gets to this point in her life where she really wants to be part of what's happening in the studio. Um, she ends up producing uh, the album, I Feels Like Making Love, which was, you know, this incredible album. But it kind of like, it reminded me of this series that PBS did several years ago called Soundbreakers. Um, in that documentary, which was produced by George Martin, the only female producer that's really featured is uh, Linda Perry. And Linda Perry was a uh, is a, a an accomplished songwriter herself. She writes a lot of hits for big pop stars. But she also really had some interesting things to say about producing those stars and what a collaborative effort it was. And so I just, I don't know, I started thinking about it and how come we don't hear about these people. And uh, going back to Roberta Flack, how when she when she suggested that she produce her, her own album, you know, people started calling her difficult. Like she started getting this reputation as being difficult. So in any event, uh, going forward, going forward and, and backwards in that, I seem to remember hearing about Joni Mitchell. It's the same thing, right? So Joni Mitchell, after David Crosby produced her first album, uh, she ended up, she, it was called Song to a Seagull. And after that, she just said, I, I'm, I'm going to start producing my own albums. She has like a difficult reputation, but she kind of has just, you know, people respect her, but they, you know, there's not, she's not this uh, charismatic performer, you know, and I think a lot of it is because she wants to have control over her, you know, over her music. And so e ever since then, she's been producing her own until she, you know, until recently, she's been producing her own albums. I don't think a lot of people know that, um, you know, she has, I, I'm just looking at her, you know, her production. I mean, it's just, she has some incredible iconic albums that she's been responsible solely. She has a sole producer credit on it. So I, I think that sometimes, you know, a lot of people just like fell in love with her for her music, but also she was very attractive and she had a lot of boyfriends. And mm -hmm. and so uh, that already puts up a kind of a wall, you know, because, you know, the, the good looking woman thing mm -hmm. and, and which takes away from the intellectual part of the person. So, uh Right. And I think the thing with Joni that I think separates her from some of the other folks is that she did have these, you know, she had these superstars, like you said, that were around her. So she, you know, she was kind of protected in that way. Unlike, you know, like Ricky Lee Jones, who also has this reputation for being, you know, difficult and uh, not easy to work with. It's, uh, you know, Ricky Lee is one of those uh, musicians that I just love. And I, I see her whenever I can, because she's such a gifted uh, songstress. You know, she's just like her, her, vo her voice is such an incredible instrument. But she did this interview years ago, worked with a lot of really great people and a lot of great producers, but, you know, people kept wanting to pigeonhole her. You know, is she a jazz singer? Is she a folk singer? Is she this or that? And she just wanted to do whatever she wanted to do. She ended up taking the reins. Some of her, the albums that she produced, she attracted like a lot of great, great guest talent, like um, Leo Cotti, David Hidalgo, Brian Setzer, Jim Keltner, Lyle Lovett. I mean, all these people were on um, her albums, you know, starting with like Traffic in Paradise, which came out in 1993 and onward. You know, when those, al when, when albums come out, 
they get recognition or they get airplay. This goes, you know, this just goes across the board with uh, with musicians in general. I just don't know if people understand like the that the whole creative process is is not it's the songwriting, but it's also making sure that the song delivery is what you're what you've envisioned. And all the other steps involved of making it cover mm-hmm. design, et cetera, et cetera. And it's nice if the one artist can have influence on all those steps. Yes. And actually I was thinking, so, we, you know, we we started doing like a little research, you and I, and we're sending each other articles back and forth. And this one woman really caught my eye. Her name is Sylvia Moy, M-O-Y. And she, um, she ended up, she was a songwriter too. And she ended up um, uh, writing My Sharia More with Stevie Wonder. And it was, she, at the time, I guess they didn't have Braille. Uh, in the studio at Motown. And so she sang it to him over, you know, she sang it to him in his ear, like just a little step ahead so that he could catch, you know, catch the lyrics as she was singing them. And, you know, she went on to um, be a producer. She's, you know, in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but she's one of like the first people I think that got really recognized because Stevie recognized her. And she, um, after she left uh, Motown, she ended up going, she started her own studio, which was called, um, Sylvia Moy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she said, you know, she was one of the only women in her field and, you know, she ended up writing um, hits for like Marvin Gaye and the Isley Brothers. She did really break the glass ceiling for women in that in the music industry because it was the 60s. And not only were women like not encouraged to play instruments, but they weren't encouraged to be in the studio, too. They were just supposed to, you know, look good. Maybe they wrote some songs, you know, you show up to work in your dress and your hat and your gloves, you know, <laughs> things like that. But she and she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2006 and um, has been recognized as a producer. And she ended up leaving when she left. She she started called uh, Masterpiece Sound Studios, which was something that um, she wanted to she really she wanted to, first of all, stay in Detroit but she wanted to put together a studio where she could produce, you know, contemporary songwriting artists too. So she went on to form her own, her own space as well, which is really good. Yeah. And then there's another person that, um, that we were talking about too, which I just found, found like fascinating. Her name is Sylvia Robinson and Sylvia Robinson. And this is kind of cool only because I've been teaching my students the history, like a, just a mini, mini history of hip hop because they love the 80s. She started, she and her husband started a soul music label called All Platinum Records. They had, they ended up producing things for a lot of like New Jersey, New York and New Jersey artists. And then she, she ended up in the 70s with her husband to found, it was called Sugar Hill Records. And Sugar Hill is this kind of, you know, Tony area in, in Harlem. But with with that, she um, worked with the Sugar Hill Gang, <laughs> um, which is, this is like one of the first hip hop records that was actually produced and sold on an album, right? And their big hit, which was, is, um, is Rapper's Delight, which is like this 14 minute song, but it's like one of those things that is always um, sampled and you hear in movies every once in a while, you know, and things like that. But I just love that that particular song, which to me was part of my childhood growing up, was what she produced, like, you know, worked with these artists and produced them. And she also worked with um, the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, another groundbreaking hip hop group. That's kind of cool. And then the thing that's just, the thing that I found like kind of cool is the connection that some of these women have. So just skipping forward in the hip hop genre, Lauren Hill, <clears throat> you know, produced with two other people, but mainly the producer credit is hers. Um, so Lauren Hill was part of the Fugees with Wyclef Jen and he, um, and they, they ended up breaking up, she went solo. 
And the solo album that she put out is called The Miseducation of Miss Lauren Hill, which is in the National Archives. And it's it's an incredible album. And she samples Roberta Flack on that. So I love that, that she, you know, uses some of her music, you know, in her in her music. And um, but there was one other. Did any of these win Grammys um, or? Um, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's gramophone? Is that for people who are producers and engineers? Or yeah, the Grammys. The Grammys do have. Well, so typically for a bet for if something wins like a best album of the year, it's the artist and the producer because they'll talk about who's who produces it. So I believe that I'm almost positive that the Miseducation of uh, Lauren Hill won won a Grammy award at that time. Uh, uh, we'll have to do like a little bit of research on that, but um, I can look that up here. That's okay. Yeah. Um, Lauren Hill. Now, how old is that? I mean, is that really current, Lauren Hill, or is this? No. So that would that came out in the late nineties. Yeah. But it's still. I mean, <clears throat> it has such. Yeah. So it it actually, she um she won best new artist R and B female R and B best R and B album at the nineteen ninety nine Grammy Awards. So she um, she was the, fir like, the first hip hop artist to be featured on the cover of Time magazine. As I said, that album was included in the Library of Congress and the National Archives. But, um, I, you know, I love that there's like this, you know, tipping of the hat, you know, to other people. Yes. In the past that came before. And, I, you know, just going back to Roberta Flack, too. I mean, I, you know, she even even though that she produced that album, she went she produced under a different name. And it was uh, so when you see it, it's Rubina Flake. She had this like alter ego. And I think part of it was because she had, you know, she wanted to protect her image as Roberta Flack. And when she had to be in the studio and be tough, you know, she had this, you know, moniker that she had created. Smart woman. Yeah. I find it interesting that, again, that there's so many um, pop artists now like that, that really, really want to have like a hands-on approach. And I, I, don't, I think that, you know, producing, you know, it's so nice when you hear, it's so, I guess not, not nice, but it's cool. It's very cool when you hear a great album you know, from that's from beginning to end. And that's put together in a way that makes sense. And that's, that's, you know, not only like does a, you know, it's the, it's the songs, but that's where a good producer comes in too. You know, there's, there's this statistics, like, did you know that women make up around 20% of all musical artists and only 2% of women are music producers in spite of the increase of male producers and artists in the music industry, there are plenty of talented women producers generating trailblazing work Mm -hmm. But then there's a big discrepancy in the numbers. Um, there is, yeah, there is. And you know what? But I think that's changing. You know, I, I really think that's changing. And I think part of it is that, um, you know, women are standing up for each other. You know, there's a sisterhood. There's an allyship. And I think that, um, they, you know, instead of, you know, and not not accepting this like difficult, like that person's difficult or don't work with that person. You know, I think that there's more um, there's a, an embrace that's happening. And you see that in television, you see that in film, you see that in theater, and you're starting to, I think, I really think you're really starting to see that in music, especially when you hear, when you hear other, when you hear other uh, female artists talk about their contemporaries, you know, there's just such a reverence and a desire to work together. Um, I was going to say, there are people like Lady Gaga and uh, Taylor Swift, who were trailblazers in a way as well for mm -hmm. they they made a lot of money and and they had complete control over what they were doing at after a certain point you know so taylor swift didn't she didn't she have to buy all her music back or something 
She did. I mean, she, she had, she did buy all of her music back and that's, that, again, that goes, that, that's another, um, uh, that's a, that's a great topic because I think, you know, she, she's always, there's, there's a great documentary about her that's out there, but um, she, um, you know, this is, she had really good people behind her um, that trusted her and believed in her. And I think that she was brought up with a sense of um, self-worth that was like, she, you know, I'm, this is what I'm doing and nobody's going to, you know, not stand in my way, but I'm not going to uh, politely back away. And I think that's also like the, the shift is that instead of, um, you know, feeling like you have to, you know, right. Which I think that um, when, you know, in, in see, hearing her speak about her experience and uh, Ricky Lee Jones, I think it was really hard for her to be heard and hard for her to be seen. And she is a really unique, you know, musician. And some of her, you know, some of her music is on the radio. I mean, Chucky's in Love, everyone knows that song. But she has like such a huge breadth of 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 um of uh music that she's created that's completely, it's always original and different. And I, and she's always embracing like working with other musicians and younger musicians. And the last time I saw her, she had a, a whole young, very young women playing all these kind of different cool instruments around her. So, but I think that was hard for her, but I think the shift with Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga is that they, they, you know, didn't grow up in a world where you had to be, um, you had to be quiet, you know, <laughs> and I love that about our generation, um, not my, my generation, but, you know, sort my generation sort of, but I wouldn't say uh, the younger generation is that, um, and I don't know what that is, Gen Z and Gen Z 2.0, whatever it is, but they, you know, they really, um, they really do not have a problem, especially the women speaking up for themselves are speaking up and out for other women too. So, uh, you know, that's, that's something that I think is going to, it's a huge shift. And I think we'll be hearing a lot more about the women who are not only performing and creating their music, but producing their own music too. Now, listen, it's not for everybody. I mean, there's great, there's, there's great, artists out there that don't want to be part of the production at all you know um it, that is like as you said it's a lot of work right to like try to put everything together and like you know you have to understand all the engineering and then you have to do all the package all that stuff and sometimes you just want to be the artist i totally get that but what it's not any different than somebody who wants to write star and direct their own movie you know right it's kind of like what it is you take control of like what your art is it's not just a song anymore it's your creation so, and getting back to Linda Perry, it's interesting because I think that when you see her in that Soundbreakers, you know, interview to her song, like, so they, um, she came out, I'm trying to think of the name of the song. When Four Non Blondes came out, they came out with this song. Um, I think it's called, oh, maybe it's called like, What's Going On? Oh. Four Non Blondes. Yeah, Four Non Blondes. And, um, but for a while, like, even though this was like this huge hit song, right? It was, I'm going to see if I can find it. There's not enough it's called What's Up. So this song was called What's Up. And it was like on the radio. And and but even though that they would, you know, the, of course the DJ is like citing who the, the band is, right? Oh, that's Four Non Blonde singing their hit What's Up. You know, if people didn't catch that part of the, you know, of the um shout out, everyone thought it was like Guns N' Roses, you know. And I don't think that people really were corrected, you know, that it was like this all, this all-girl kind of grungy like rock band, you know. And for her, I mean, she's she is a really she's written some incredible hits for some big stars like Pink and um, Christine Aguilera. But she and she also just recently she partnered with Dolly Parton. 
um, for uh, it was a Netflix show, and I can't I can't remember the name of it, but they, she did. Um, uh, la, 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 la. So there's a the uh, there's this woman who's been nominated for an Oscar award, and I cannot pronounce her name, but it's this movie called To Leslie, and Linda Perry actually did the soundtrack for that. So you know, not only is she, you know, she's she's like the good she's she really is i think um the biggest known music producer because she does you know she also writes and collaborates with these big artists and people will you know approach her but um and i you know i which is it's different than being an artist and a you know it's a different thing than than taylor swift producing her own album i mean she's i think really uh enjoys that collaborative process sounds good she's uh doing soundtracks and you know regular music songs yeah. Yes, and the the um, and of course you know Dolly Parton. I'm trying to think of this. I saw something in my notes here, or whatever I took off the internet, um, that more women need to go into sound engineering. Mm -hmm. The because they're missing. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yep. So this is they. Um, it was a it was a Grammy nominated song called "Girl in the Movies," and it was from this um, this uh, the soundtrack for this movie called Dumplin' with Jennifer Aniston on Netflix. You know. So I mean, uh, anyways, uh, she's. I just. I, I really. I, I appreciate that she um, is constantly trying to mix it up and. Work, you know, she doesn't just work with a certain type of musician, you know, she works across the board with um, filmmakers and country legends, you know, and young stars, you know, pop stars and things like that. So, but I'm sorry, what did you just say? Oh, we, what we were talking about um, engineering. Yes, yes, engineering. Sound, sound engineering and, you know, uh, the business part of production and um, things things like that, getting business degrees and, um, but that engineering, sound engineering is very important. We need you out there, people. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking right now, it's like 7% of audio engineers are women, 93% are men, you know? And I, I well, and again, like, I think that that was something that wasn't open. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was open to women. It probably wasn't something that, that, that women considered until again, like recently, I mean, going back to the film industry, there, there are so many more um, female cinematographers now, for example, you know, it's not just costume designers, which is, there's, you know, costume design is excellent, you know, but also it'd be nice to be, it's nice to see and hear from more um, female soundtrack produce, you know, producers, writers and producers, people that are composers. But I think that um, the more that, the more that we uh, talk about these different kinds of these different jobs that are out there, these different career paths that are out there to younger women, you know, and, um, and show them that it's achievable, that we're going to see a rise. I think we'll definitely see a rise. When I, when I was a kid, you know, you, you get an album, you might have the radio, you know, mm -hmm. listening to songs, singing along with songs or playing your, on your re record player at home, but we weren't inundated with music like we are with a computer and our iPhones. I, I just think it's amazing how much music has taken over our lives in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, we we make choices about what we want to listen to or how much we want to listen to per day, mm -hmm. how many hours. But um, it's just like, uh, I don't know, like food. <laughs> how much music did you have today? It's become like taking over our lives, which is fine. I'm a musician. That's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was just thinking too, another person, another difficult woman is um, Yoko Ono. 
you know, I mean, and Yoko Ono, John, John Lennon, all the albums they did together, um, but also John's album, she's a producer on. And, uh, you know, she also, I mean, she, she gets a, she gets a bad rap, you know, but she's actually a really, really interesting artist, very interesting artist. I saw this show that was, um, it was, uh, again, women breaking the glass ceiling and um, art in the fifties and fifties and sixties. And it was in Los Angeles and, you know, they had all the, all the, the big names that have gone on to be in, you know, MoMA, those kinds of museums. But this, this, these pieces by Yoko, you know, these installations were so powerful, you know, for what she was trying to do, you know, what she was, what her statements were at that time. It actually gave me a completely different insight into, you know, her, her, her creative process as an artist. And, you know, again, like, you know, just seeing her, um, especially like in, in Get Back, you know, people you know have their opinions about, you know, Yoko and the Beatles, um, which I think have, have, fi have finally like flatlined. But, you know, she, um, she what, recently, I'm skipping around here a little bit. So let me start again. I'll interrupt um, you because uh, that is one of your uh, strong points when it comes to radio is the Beatles, right? <laughs> no, yeah, that's <laughs> it is. And actually, um, I usually do uh, in in March, um, um, a all, you know, women covers of the Beatles, because there's a lot of really, really great covers by women of, of Beatles songs. But I was gonna say with Yoko, like she, um, oh, gosh, I just Oh, there. So another another documentary, I just love music documentaries. Another music documentary is called um, Above Us Only Sky. And it's this, um, it's the it's kind of like this, the creation story of the song Imagine. And it's so interesting because, you know, it, it, he, so John gives her credit on the Dick Cavett show. If you ever watch those Dick Cavett shows where they like, they basically co-host with him, but he says, you know, she, she basically was the inspiration and wrote the song. And I just took credit for it. Cause I'm, you know, it's like, I was a bastard and, you know, I just felt like I'm the guy I was going to do it, but I, it was just so fascinating because it was out, but nobody cared you know, because she was still like demonized as like this difficult person, you know, when actually when you look at all of her work and how much she was inspired by her, you know, and how she really because because of her classical musical background, you know, she really um, drove a lot of their, you know, when they were doing their double albums together and writing together. You she's, know, still, even, she's still alive, right? She is still alive. And, you know, she probably doesn't want to answer the question, but she probably has uh, PTSD. <laughs> After being uh, put down and you know, laughed at for all those years, yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, it's really it's it's such a um, it's such a sad story because they and you know and I and I I think that I mean so many you know decades have passed, but when they left, right? So they they um, left England, and you know I, we're going completely off topic here, but you know just this whole thing that's been going on with, you know, Harry and Megal, they, it was the same thing. They were just getting ridiculed. I mean, like the, the press, it was so mean to Yoko, like saying these terrible, like racist things to her, you know, which is in the documentary, Imagine, not the, not Above Us Always Sky, but that documentary. So they decided to leave. They're like, we're, we're leaving. And they went to New York. And of course, like a lot of people who were around New York in the seventies talk about it as being like the wild west. Like it was just, you know, falling apart. It was broke. It was crazy. And they were always walking around like ninth Avenue. Like they'd walk home, you know, <laughs> people would like strangers say, you can't walk, like get in the car. We'll give you a ride, you know, cause they knew who they were, but they said that, you know, they, nobody, but really bothered them. They had friends, they got involved, like and they got over, like over involved in the activism because so many people wanted to like them to be a part of what, whatever they were working and whatever they were doing at that time. But it was just so much more exhilarating. But the sad thing is that, you know, John never went back to England 
and then he was and he was killed 10 years later you know they weren't right. really there for that long but it's just like that that just it kind of breaks my heart a little bit you know because it's just to have that much pain from you know the, the memory of a place and have that much pain and like ang- angst or chaos surrounding it and um and not being able to return home you know is sad because i know that the rest of the boys i know i'm talking about the beatles now but um I always say, don't get me started. Uh, you know, they still had ties to Liverpool. You know, they always went home. Um, so it's just, I don't know. It's kind of sad. But yeah, I think there probably was some PTSD. And I think that's why, you know, Sean in particular is very protective of his mother, for sure. We're going to have to have volume two of this. I know. <laughs> you know, but anyways, I just to like, I just want to list some names here. So we have Sylvia Moy, Roberta Flack, or Rubina Flake, Lauren Hell, Miss Lauren Hell, just you know, bow down to Joni Mitchell, Janet Jackson, Ricky Lee Jones, Linda Perry, Esther Dean, um, and Sylvia Robinson, Annie Lennox also has, you know, became a producer on her albums later, you know, in the later years. So just some really, you know, and then of course we have like the Lady Gagas and the Taylor Swifts and, you know, those people who are Rihanna, who are just mixing it up and doing cool stuff. So I don't know, it's nice to be able to give a shout out to these, to these women who are, you know, they are superstars and they are, they, they are actually sound breakers too. And it's uh, all about International Women's Day. And uh, we're talking about mostly American artists and producers, but um, this is going on in England too. Yeah. And France and so, and on and on. So I know, I know. It's really interesting how a movement, um, well, I guess, you know, it's, I, I know in, historically, you know, there's like that one domino that falls and it just kind of is felt around the world. And I think that um, even, you know, with with everything that was going on in the 60s, none of that was really, I don't think any of it was really resolved in a way. You know, I mean, you think about, there were so many movements that were happening, um, you know, that we're now just learning about. Everybody learns about the civil rights movement. That's very, very important, you know, but there was also like um, the Native American rights, there was the disability American rights, there was women rights, there was gay rights, I mean, there's just so much stuff happening. And it just kind of like got, you know, it just, it, you know, it got undermined by the 80s. And I think that with the events that have happened in the past three years, and because we have this very loud, very proud, um, not afraid, you know, um, younger generation, who are, they're just not afraid to call a spade a spade, you know, they just well, they're, you know, they're out there, and they're, you know, Twittering, or like, you know, and just call, calling, um, calling it, calling uh, baloney on what baloney is, I guess is what I should say. But <clears throat> that's because you know, so I've seen like this uprise in, <clears throat> I've seen this up, this uptick in issues um, across, you know, across the world when it comes to, let's say like women's rights or, you know, African-American or African rights or gay rights, or, you know, in, in our own country, like, this this movement that's happening with the Native American women, you know, and the missing women, um, it's pretty it's pretty powerful. And 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 um, a lot of media and entertainment are getting behind it. You know, they're no longer afraid. Like we're we're not going to make money on that, or you know, we're that's that's a um, we can't sell it. You know, like Showtime is coming out with this documentary series, I think next month about Montana and all the the outrage of all the uh, missing Native American women. And it just goes on and on. I mean, it just, it's its incredible. It's, right across the border too. Yeah. Yeah. And this happened in uh, Australia as well. Yes, yes. And, uh, yep. So uh, I just want to thank you. And I also want to point out that my guest on this interview, Kat Williams is also a 
public school teacher, right? I am. Yeah. I teach <laughs> and, fifth grade. <laughs> so you're 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 getting um some really fresh young uh viewpoint about our 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 society. So that's that's a that's a good thing. I mean, I, I hope I hope it's positive and I hope the kids are okay. Yeah, I think that uh, you know it's it's um it's hard it's I, I honestly it's I think it's um it's hard to tell right I think that I work with ten year olds and they um in a lot of ways they are a lot more mature than you know they're like what what they're doing and what they're interested in is on a whole different level than the things that I was doing at ten years old and um and they're also very much aware of the, the current events you know and i i think that um there's you know there's things that we can we talk about in the classroom and i always think like wow this is like it's kind of it's kind of heavy but it's also they appreciate it because they have questions about it they're you know they're hearing you know about all these things that are happening in the world and it's it's up to us like my colleague and i i work with a rock star teacher and so we team teach you know that to, to be able to have a place where we can talk about this with the kids and so that they feel safe and if they have questions about climate change you know or what's happening in iran you know I mean, there's like you know there's a lot of stuff and you know it's like they may hear it they may be in the car with their parents it's on npr or the radio or whatever it is you know it can give you as for a young person like a lot of stress if you don't know um exactly what's going on right so i think that i think when i was that age i wasn't exposed to that much stuff you know growing up we had to do um current events right but it was like from the town crier i grew up in sudbury so it was, like, <laughs> it was a really like a lot of you know it wasn't like today so yeah so i don't know i mean i i mean i'm i think that i mean i do know i think that they are um i guess like i guess my point is is that it's interesting because they're 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 10 but they're also mature in other ways in like a, a lot of other ways you know and that's that's interesting and i'm i'm still i'm still wrapping my head around that because <clears throat> You know, you um, when you train to teach and you've been teaching for a while, you kind of are meeting the kids where they are. And ever since COVID, you know, which you know makes sense because when you're at home, you're exposed to a lot more stuff, and you know, you're doing a lot more different things, and there's a lot more electronics and all of that stuff. I mean, there's just been a different um, way that the kids have the way that they ask questions, access information, uh, create their learning. You know, it's very it's very different. So. But it's, it's cool, you know, it's good as an educator because you have to, you're challenged. Big, a big learning curve happened in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> Especially for us older people. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to thank you very much. We're going to have to do it again. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you so much. Thank you thank for being you. flexible and for keeping on me for this because it's, I, I love talking about music and I love talking about rising up. So nice. <laughs> we'll support the women. Happy International Women's Day, everybody.